Hello everybody and welcome to the greatest games on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, with me is Jonathan Wilson. With us today is Jack Pitbrook, football writer for The Athletic. Jack, nice to have you back on the pod. Oh, it's so good to be back. I love this podcast. <laughs> oh, God bless you, sir. Uh, today we go back to May 2017 for the match at White Hart Lane that ended Tottenham Hotspur 2, Manchester United 1. Jack, why have you chosen this match? Because it was Tottenham's last ever game at White Hart Lane, uh, their last home game the 16-17 season, which was, even though they ended up endy-handed, one of the great club seasons, I think, of recent years, in which Mm. Tottenham were astonishingly good all season, 86 points, came second, uh, won 17 of their 19 home games. And through the whole season, they were carried on by this wave of emotion and momentum from playing the last season at White Hart Lane. And, and on top of which, they were an incredibly good team, like very well coached by Mauricio Pochettino, very good players in every position, everyone playing to the plan. And this 2-1 win over Manchester United was the perfect climax to that. It could, Except for the fact that they didn't end up winning the league, it could not have been a better or more suitable uh, ending to this amazing season that they had and to be honest the whole era of White Hart Lane yeah all 118 years of of White Hart Lane of course and uh, Jonathan your opposite manager that day of Manchester United with Jose Mourinho and, and for him you know on the odd occasion second place is is worth worthy of a <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's um it's it's remarkable watching this game back to see how quickly things have changed mm. that you know just four years later the fact Marina has obviously been in charge of Tottenham and finished that process, uh, but also just the levels of the squads now. Um, I mean, obviously, Tottenham have a nicer stadium now, or, or, a, or a more more modern, more lucrative stadium now. But the the, the expectations are, are incredibly different. So I, I you know, I think it um, th- this game in a way it sort of marks the end of a of a of a period. Uh, you think Leicester won the title the previous year. Tottenham maybe could have won the title this year. And then the Super Club was took back over. And if you look at the spending of both, you know, of Tottenham compared to Manchester United since, and you see how difficult it is to for a club of Tottenham stature, which is still an enormous stature, you know, they still would have been in the European Super League, for them to propel themselves in that very highest tier is essentially impossible. So the, uh, I mean, the following season, Tottenham signed Davinson Sanchez for 42 million euros, Lucas Moura, Serge Aurier, Gerente and Foyt. But they lose Walker, Vimmer, Bentaleb and G. Mm. The season after that, they don't sign anybody. And then they get Ndombele, um Bergvine, Sessegnon and Lacelso. Whereas Manchester United since then have signed Sancho, Varane, Van der Beek, Maguire, Fernandes, Wambasaka, uh, James, Fred, Lukaku, Matic, Lindelof, and Alexis Sanchez. So when Manchester United down in a look, that's what they do. They they spend uh, yeah, a billion pounds on, I don't know, was that 10, 12 players? And Tottenham, to, to try and elevate themselves by moving into a, a better stadium, have to have a couple of years where they, they can't spend any money. I think what was so interesting about this particular period, as Jonathan gets at there, is it was such a window of opportunity for 
teams in the Premier League outside of the very richest teams because City were obviously in transition. Uh, this was Guardiola's first season. They didn't really get good till the following year. Chelsea were in a peak of their own with Antonio Conte, which obviously only lasted for one year. Uh, Manchester United were in this long kind of post-Ferguson um, transitional period. And Liverpool was still getting up to speed. They hadn't brought in the players who went on to make Jurgen Klopp's team eventually win the Champions League and the league. And so in hindsight, um, you know, this explains both Leicester winning the title the previous season and also Tottenham nearly winning it in 16-17. In hindsight, this was maybe the last ever chance that non-super club teams would have to win the title because obviously since then, City have won three out of four and the other one was won by an astonishingly good Liverpool type side. I mean, I think there's an odd... There's an odd sense in which Chelsea in this particular season we're talking about in 2016-17. So I mean, you can't say they weren't a super club because clearly they were, but they weren't really behaving like a super club. They essentially got on one incredible run. Yeah. But they hadn't had the level of spending that they've had since, for instance. Yeah. And th- that incredible run was ended by Pochettino's Tottenham in one of the many, you know, in a game that really kind of foreshadowed this game that we're talking about on today's podcast, that 2-0 win at White Hart Lane in January 2017, where Chelsea came in having won 13 on the spin in the league. Tottenham beaten 2-0. And even though Tottenham weren't quite good enough to catch up with Chelsea and win the Premier League title, it just showed how Tottenham could kind of take the scalps of anyone, really, at White Hart Lane. Yeah, well, it does show you. I mean, to, to chuck in a odd fact or whatnot, they, they finished second, of course, with 86 points, the highest ever tally, well, ever, but of course... It wasn't always three points for a win. Um, their highest finish since 1963 under Bill Nicholson, of course. They've gone unbeaten at home in the league that season as well. I think that, that win against Manchester United was, what, their 18th on the spin, something like that at home, which is absolutely incredible. And, and Jack, this sort of... I remember Jamie Carragher talking about, um, obviously, when he played for Liverpool, there was a season where they finished second. And I think they only lost something like three, maybe four games all year. They were absolutely brilliant. And yet they were pipped to the title um, because I think it was Manchester United just had a, a, just a slightly more incredible season. And it feels like that with Tottenham with, with this year that in, in other years, this would have been a, a, a title winning season, which seems quite remarkable, you know, as Jonathan said earlier, where, where Spurs find themselves right now. Completely, yeah. I mean, they got five more points than Leicester had had when they won the Premier League the previous season. I think mm. Leicester got 81 in 15-16. They got 86 is as many points as Manchester City got when they won the league last year. Yeah. So, you know, in some not every year, because obviously the bar has gone up, I think, in the last sort of 10, certainly, certainly in the last five years. In many years, they got enough points to have won the title. So... Uh, there's, you could only, in terms of what more could they have done, you're only lo- really looking at some away performances that were maybe not so consistent. They didn't really win any of the big away games, dropped a few too many points. But given the context of how little money was put behind this team, you know, it was built large by Pochettino from scratch, really, in 2014, despite what Tim Sherwood might say, um, <laughs> with very little money spent spent on it. Lots of, you know, a mixture of young players and players players who he inherited from the previous era who he improved, which isn't always how modern managers like to go about things, with the exception of Jurgen Klopp. Um, it, you know, it was really a miracle of management, the Pochettino era. And this season, e- even though they'd had nothing in the trophy cabinet to show for it, I think is, you know, an absolute crown- a crowning triumph of Pochettino's managerial career so far. Yeah, I mean, Pochettino... Um... Jonathan, he had sort of a fairly sort of instant impact at Tottenham, and and now you look back and you think, 
obviously Spurs are a huge club and they have huge ambitions and so on. But this period, it's very much about Pochettino rather than um, Spurs, if you if you see what I mean. Well, it is um, in the sense that no other, you know, no Spurs manager since Bill Nicholson had come as close, and yeah. he was doing it without the astonishing levels of spending that, that certain other clubs have needed to, to elevate themselves. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is very much about about Pochettino, but it is also about the players, um, and I think that becomes more of an issue when they can't rejuvenate that squad. Um, I mean, that's something I was trying to. I mean, Jackie obviously covered them much more closely than than I did. But was there a sense at the time that this was a uh, how can I put this? Yeah, squads have cycles, right? And there's only sort of two or three years when they're really at the peak of the cycle. And so if you do miss your chance, it doesn't necessarily come around again, even if you have great investment for another two or three years. So was there a sense that this was a squad that sort of had let had let its its chance slip with 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 not winning the league the previous season when 82 points would have been enough and then not quite getting enough this season. Yeah, I think there was a bit of that. I think there was a bit of consciousness that it, they wouldn't always have such a window of opportunity and that eventually, you know, that City would City were kind of ominous ominously spending in the summer of 2017 which of course led them to get to win the title title the next two seasons. I think people also sensed that Liverpool were getting better as well. And of course it wasn't too long before Liverpool signed Alisson and Van Dijk who basically that those two signings helped Liverpool to jump over Tottenham uh, and get much closer to to City. But equally, at the same time, there was there was definitely a sense at Tottenham that they were so close and they needed one signing mm. to get them over the line. And you know, famously, in summer twenty sixteen, Pochettino really wanted Sadio Mane. Um, they had Mane in at Tottenham. They they thought they could get him. He went to Liverpool instead. Tottenham signed Moussa Sissoko. Uh, in 2018, they tried very hard to get Jack Grealish. They tried to negotiate a little bit too hard with Aston Villa. And then Aston Villa got bought and didn't need to sell Jack Grealish anymore. And now, you know, three years on, Grealish is playing for City. So there was Wilfred Zaha again was a player who they really wanted. Levy tried to lowball Steve Parrish and uh, didn't get anywhere. So I definitely think through this period, there was a feeling at Tottenham. They were one player away. They could just maybe get an extra... Mm-hmm. exciting winger, someone to give them a little bit of a plan B going forward, then that might push them over the edge. But obviously, you know, you need money to do that. And they were building a stadium that cost £1.2 billion to do. So there was definitely, I think at the time, a sense that their their window was slipping away from them a bit, but they didn't quite have the resources to do it. I mean, you, meant, you mentioned there Levy and his uh, tough negotiating style, shall we say. Um where do you stand on him? Do you do you see him as sort of the architect of a modern Tottenham with a great new stadium and and the fact they are sort of established as uh, certainly in terms of of stature, not necessarily position in the table, established as a sort of top six club? Or do you think that at times he's pushed that too hard and that has been counterproductive? Well, I think both really. It's a bit of a cowardly answer, but in, clearly he has done miraculously well with no external investment from Joe Lewis to have built the best training ground in the country, the best stadium in the country, to have turned Tottenham into something very, very different from what it was when he bought it from Alan Sugar 20 years ago. Um, all the, Competing in a football marketplace against City, Chelsea, Man United, Liverpool. So in that sense, he's done really well. At the same time, 
clearly the success of this of this particular era that we're talking about today is down to Pochettino, not Daniel Levy. And to be honest, if Levy had pushed the boat out a bit more on signings during the very this very period that we're talking about now, I think Tottenham probably would have won the league under Pochettino, or they would have won something, or they would have got closer, and things wouldn't have unravelled in the back end of the Pochettino era in the way that they did. So, uh, I mean, I think he's a business genius more than a football genius, and while I do think he's done incredibly well for that club, um, I think that you know, it's kind of understandable why a lot of Spurs fans blame him for not quite taking advantage when the situation was so good. Because, hmm. I mean, my, my sense of that, and this is somebody who's sort of a, you know, a, a, a semi-outsider, but... I, I sort of had sympathy with him that if the money's not there, don't don't spend it. That's fine. You've got a budget. You've got to be got to be strict with it. And if you don't do that, you can get in all kinds of trouble, as we've seen with you know, Leeds as a paradigmatic case, but but plenty of other clubs as well. And and yet, suddenly the money is there to appoint Mourinho, and that seemed to me having having pushed this argument of. Um, uh, prudence and caution and, and, and fiscal responsibility to then break the bank on Mourinho seemed to, those two things I couldn't I, I don't, don't quite see how those two things go together and in the end Tottenham end up with the worst of both worlds and obviously it's the, the situation's been made worse by by the pandemic and they wouldn't you know, almost certainly wouldn't have needed the emergency loan had it not been for the pandemic I mean yes the worst possible look that you move into a new stadium and as soon as you've got it, you're not allowed to have anybody in it because of because of COVID. So I, you know, I accept there's, there's a misfortune there that, that makes it look worse. But I, I, I do sort of think if that money they spent on Mourinho had been spent on the squad you know, a year earlier, then they might not have needed to appoint Mourinho and, and things might have been a bit better. Yeah, I think that's a totally fair criticism. Although I do think that, I think Levy's priorities did change a little bit by that point because I think he thought that having moved into the new stadium now it was the time to to act like a big club you know to appoint who's the most famous manager we can appoint and let let's get the eyes of the world onto Tottenham Hotspur um, which I think is clearly bad football logic you know from a football's perspective Mourinho was a disastrous decision but I um uh I do think he yeah it was his priorities had slightly changed, I think, by late 2019 when he thought it was time to make the most of the new stadium and get Amazon in and all the rest of it. Mm. All right, chaps, let's have a quick break and then we'll talk about the match afterwards. See you in a moment, everybody. Welcome back to the Greatest Games on the Blizzard. Um, chaps, we talked a bit about, obviously, Pochettino and and, and Levy there in, in that first half and saying they were the architects and or other criticisms of Levy and so on. But we can't forget the players, of course, as you mentioned, Jonathan. And Jack, this was a good side that, that Tottenham had. You know, they lined up against Manchester United that day with, of course, Kane um, in attack. Uh, and, and and various players are still there. I mean, Kane, at the time of recording, is still there. <laughs> um, of course, um, Son, Deli Alley, um, and, and Hugo um, Lloris. And, and, and the two centre-halves, Alderweire, Alden Vertonghen, were sort of quite imperious. But, I mean, do you think this is one of the best Tottenham sides that's kind of been assembled in, in recent years? Or, or would you even go to say ever? Well, I think if you, looking at the probably the most comparable metric of league league performance, it's the best best Tottenham team since Bill Nicholson. Mm. Obviously, they had, you know, they had very, very good teams under Keith Birkinshaw and they won things both in Europe and at home. And they had fantastic players like Hoddle and Waddle and Gazza and Lineker. But 
in terms of a consistent league season, there was nothing quite like this um, since the early 1960s. Um, so yeah, I think I think it probably was the best, and all, and it's just an amazing, it's just an amazingly balanced team. If you look mm. at it, this wasn't even how they for most of the season they actually played a a kind of a back three with uh, then with Dembele and Wanyama in the yeah. middle and Ali and Eriksson as two tens behind Kane. Whereas in this particular game, you'll see that it's actually a four two three one because Dembele yeah. started on the bench, which allowed them to get Son in. Of course, since this point, Son's got better and better and become a great player for Tottenham. Whereas this this kind of a transitional season for Son. Um, but in terms of yeah, in terms of individuals, balance, uh, a team with a bit of everything in it, yeah, it's it's kind of hard to look at a better better coached and balanced team than this. Yeah, uh, Jonathan, uh, another one of those players who um, was was you know big for Pochettino is Deli Alley. And we think about you know what's happened with him is almost kind of what's happened with Spurs. You look back at this season. The following summer, he'd be playing, he'd be starting for England in the World Cup. This season, he got 22 goals in all competitions, 18 in the league. And unless you count Matt Letizia as a midfielder, you know, only Yaya Torre and, and Frank Lampard have, I think, got more in a, in a single league season from midfield. I know Delia is sort of slightly more advanced, you could say, but, you know, what, what a season he had. I mean, in, in him, Spurs look like they've got one of the sort of the best young talents in, in the league. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that game against Chelsea that we spoke about, I think you know, he was sensational in that game. Mm. Uh, so yeah, he, he he was doing it in the in the biggest games as well. And I, I think he is um, he is one of the real disappointments, and not just for Spurs but for English football over the last couple of years. That somebody who was you know, very obviously an automatic starter for England, who who was you know, one of the leading talents in the team that finished second. And you know, can't get anywhere near the England squad now, which is partly because of the number of young players coming through. But his level has dropped, mm. and that's yeah, that's, there's a, a real sadness to that. Um, I mean, you know, we we're recording this uh, on the Tuesday after the first weekend of the season, so he was very very good on Sunday. That that also should be said. <laughs> yes. Maybe this yep. season will yeah he, he he will come back and you know, players players have dips. He's, he's not old. It, it could be that that you know he's re-engaged, re-energized, and, and rediscovers that form. But he looked an absolutely exceptional talent at this point, and four years on, um, you can't say he's the same talent. No. Whereas Kieran Trippier, Jack, you mentioned Pochettino developing footballers. Trippier started this game in question against Manchester United. Uh, he would play, you know, Champions League football for Tottenham Hotspur. He's now a La Liga winner with Atletico and starts a, a, a European Championship final for England. I mean, he was, would you say he was one of the, the sort of success stories, if you like, of the Pochettino era at Spurs? Yeah, definitely. Well, Trippier's situation was interesting because at the start of this season, Kyle Walker was the starting right back for Spurs, but Pochettino didn't really think that Walker was fit enough and that's why Trippier started to play all the European games instead of Walker. About halfway, th- sort of March, I think, March, April, um, Walker asked to leave and said he wanted to go and it was kind of well known at this point that he wanted to go to City um, not least because I broke the story about it but then <laughs> Pochettino um, and so, you know, response to this was to drop him and to play and to play Trippier and Trippier became the first choice right back for the back end of this season and you're right you know Trippier's transformation from the guy they brought in as Burnley as backup to Walker to being someone who they could sell to Atletico Madrid in 2019 and he's obviously now a a very, very established, solid 
right back who's good defensively and going forward is like a lot of players. It's testament to Pochettino's coaching. And there's uh, every player, who, every player who was in this team was hugely improved by the experience of being coached by Pochettino. And it's not many football teams you can say that about. No. And, and Jonathan, much was made in certain parts of the press about the way Pochettino would use his fullbacks. He'd often rotate them and, and, and so on. I mean, how, how did you find Pochettino sort of tactically? What was what were the things that... that well, yeah, I, think, I think the use of the fullbacks uh, was the key thing. And it's, you know, they, the, the, the way they were used was so demanding. I mean, you know, Jack made the point earlier that this game is slightly unusual and it's a 4-2-3-1 rather than that slightly narrower shape. So if you have that narrow shape with the you know, effectively two number 10s behind Kane, you have to have the fullbacks pushing forward to give you width. And that is exhausting. And yeah, there's, um, I think it's a change in the game over the last sort of decade or so. And even now, we don't fully accept it. The idea that um, yeah, we still sort of have this, this sort of background notion of there is a first 11 and then there's the reserves. And it, we really shouldn't think like that. It should be these are the resources and you have to deploy them over the season as best you can. And if you're going to play with fullbacks like that, mm. you're going to knacker them out. And so you need four of them. You need two on both sides. And those players have to accept that they won't play every game because they're not going to be physically capable of playing every game. Mm. Um, so you know, I think it's a similar idea to you know when Lukaku was at West Brom, when he and Shane Long would sort of take it in turns to start and the other one would come on with 20 minutes to go. And you know the, the wall had been breached. The, 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 whoever was on first, their job was to wear out the opposition defence. And then the substitute comes on and capitalises. And yeah, I think that that worked really well, and it's an unusual way of using substitutes, but it, it completely made sense, and it and it worked. And this is a similar thing that there was no sense that if you got in a team at right back, you would play thirty eight league games as long as you didn't get injured. It was you will play some games, you will not play other games. I, the manager, will decide when that is, and I will make sure you don't get tired because it's going to be incredibly demanding. So yeah, I, I think he. He got more of his fullbacks by doing that. And I think it's a sort of brave, um, pioneering bit of management uh, that shows not only sort of a flexible mindset to be prepared to do that, but also um, the people skills to be able to, to get the fullbacks to buy into that. Yeah, Rose and Walker were phenomenally good in the first half of the season, especially. like it, Unfortunately, Danny Rose picked up a knee injury in, I think, January 2017, so halfway through the season. And to be honest, he's never really been the same player since then. It took him a while to come back from it. And then he uh, he didn't quite have that same explosive pace going forward. But there was a period in sort of November, December, January, when Spurs were winning almost every... It felt like Spurs were winning every game 4-0. Uh, this is when they were playing the three with Rose and Walker very high and wide. And they were just sensational. No one could lay a finger on them. And by the point of the game that we're talking about now, Ben Davis had, had actually had to play most of the games at left back because of Danny Rose's injury. But it was uh, it was quite something to watch them in terms of the intensity that they played with, and other teams were just not really prepared for that level of physicality. I think. Yeah, and and going to the the match in question itself, you know, Spurs started the game with great purpose and intensity, so sort of a hallmark of the Pochettino era. But they were straight out the traps that day. I mean, obviously the sense of occasion, the last match at White Hart Lane, and so on. But they didn't let the fans down, um, Jack, at all, and it only took six minutes for for the opening goal. Yeah, I was just going back through my um, my report, my tweets from the day. 
And one of the things I was reminded of is it, it was astonishingly loud for the first five minutes all the way through. And I thought, wow, I've never heard a game this loud before at the, at the very start of it. And then it got even louder about five or six minutes in when um, Wanyama, who again was sensationally good all season, he was a player at his absolute physical peak and was just take opposition, opposition midfields apart every single week. Um, and it helped that Spurs actually hadn't really played that much, didn't do that much in Europe that season because it meant they could put all their resources into the Premier League basket every weekend. Um, Wanyama headed in a Ben Davis cross. Obviously, Davis in the team because Rose was out. Um, after Rose, I, th- I think Davis had been passed the ball from Christian Eriksen from a corner. So it was quite a, you know, a fairly simple move, but brilliantly executed. And uh, the you know the roof was blown off the stadium, and it was uh, it got louder and louder and louder as the game went on, as Spurs tore into United. And to be honest, they should have scored more than they did. Yeah, it never looked at any moment that during the game, Jonathan, that Spurs weren't going to win. And again, the confidence of the side and the sort of the body language of of those Spurs players as well. It was one of you know we have a purpose and we're going to we're going to execute our plan. Yeah, I mean, I think it was one of the things about Pochettino's sides, particularly around this period, was they just looked physically better prepared. They just looked stronger than United. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, United had um, well, you know, their, their their front two, their central central front two were, were Rooney with Mata just behind. And Rooney's one of those players who is clearly physically very strong, but he doesn't look like a sort of toned athlete in the way that Spurs players did, which is his body type as much as anything else. And Mata is sort of a you know one of your classic diminutive Spanish creators. Uh, so the the two of them up against Alderweireld, Batong, and Diamond Wanyama, you know, it, physically there's. I mean, hey, there's twice as many of, of one side, but also they're just bigger <laughs> and quicker. Um, so, I mean, it's a slightly odd United team, it should be said. I mean, you know, Twanzebe playing at the back in midfield. Yeah. Um, I don't quite know what series of seconds has led to that happening. Do you um, think it was the Europa League final? Because they had the Europa League final against Ajax, Ajax soon, yeah. soon yeah, after. And I maybe think it was, me- maybe it was, yeah. My memory of the back end of United season that year is that Mourinho would fully prioritise the Europa League they would play pretty badly in the Premier League, you know, uh, with a lot of these kind of second string teams. So here they had Rooney, who was obviously on his way out of the club at this point, Carrick coming to the end of his time, players who weren't really going to quite make it either, like Tuanzebe. And they were rubbish in the Premier League. And they, it was that thing where not only was the team not as good as the first team, but the players on the pitch knew that they were being played to protect the good players so that the good players could play in the Europa League final. And it's not a, it doesn't make for a, a kind of strong, motivated team, I think, when, when managers do that. Yeah, no, no, you, you, you're right. I, I'd sort of, I'd forgotten that, that aspect of it. But it's still a notably weak United team. You sort of realise how desperate they needed that investment we were talking about earlier. Um, and and it, I think it's, it's become characteristic of Mourinho teams, certainly since his final season in the second spell at Chelsea. They're actually quite bad at defending set players. Uh, and so I think that that opening goal was was very typical of Mourinho teams around this period. And then, of course, you know he, the classic Mourinho post match press conference where, well, you know, I, I told them how to defend and they didn't. And, and so you, you remember his very last game at Chelsea was that game away at Leicester in, in the December of the previous season. And yeah, very similar thing of uh, you know what can I do? I've, I've given them the instructions. Well, he's yeah. got his hands tied, Jonathan. Clearly, yeah. <laughs> don't don't give Harry Kane a free header. Uh, okay, right, great, great advice, boss. Oh no, sorry. 
Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, it, what was interesting, Jack, watching this game back was you then have, I mean, Martial has a shot wide, but then Son is put through. He shoots at De Gea. Eriksen crosses to Kane, who sort of heads over. Um, uh, Spurs kind of lay siege to Manchester United's goal. And they, they did miss one or two chances or, or certainly opportunities. But they never really looked that worried after that. The, the crowd didn't look that nervous. And it was it was just a case of, oh, we're not worried. Not to worry. Next one will come. And it, they, they had such belief and confidence in themselves. Yeah, it was so different from the um, how White Hart Lane was, you know, at the start of the Pochettino era, where it was it would be pretty toxic. I remember Manuel Adebayor, I can't remember if this was at the very start of Pochettino or maybe on the previous season under AVB and Sherwood, Adebayor saying that they actually didn't like playing at White Hart Lane because it was so anxious and the fans would get on top of them, whereas the, my memories of Spurs playing at White Hart Lane in 1617 is it was just a sea of positivity. Like everyone was so, so behind the, the team. And there was no, even in this particular game, there was never any sense that they wouldn't get a second goal just because they'd seen it happen. You know, they, this in this very season, they'd steamrolled um, Guardiola's Manchester City. You know, I think Guardiola's first Premier League defeat back in October. They'd done it to, uh, so they won that game 2 0. They beat Conte's Chelsea 2 0. They'd beat an Arsenal 2-0, uh, you know, a team not on the level of City or Chelsea at this point, it should be said. Uh, so they were incredibly confident in their ability to do it. And they just attacked and attacked and attacked. And it, it just it felt inevitable that the second goal would come. And then, of course, at the start of the second half, uh, Kane kind of darts in, puts an Ericsson free kick away, and they got their second goal. Which, again, is marking from a set play. Yeah. Again, yeah. And it's uh, there's a ma- w- watching it back, the way that... Um, Deli Ali burst past an aging Michael Carrick and eventually is chopped down by Eric Bailey. It's just a kind of classic Deli piece of play to win that free kick in the first instance and also just sums up the, the kind of physical physical edge that Tottenham had over Man United this game and for much of this season. Yeah, well, I no doubt Mourinho would have told them to mark Harry Kane and was proved right when Harry Kane scored, <laughs> of course. But, it, it, Jonathan, it wasn't that long before this season when Harry Kane was... One can forget, I might be a bit strong to say this, but a slight comedy character at Spurs. <laughs> if you know what I mean by that, it was... I know, I know, I know exactly what you mean, because I, I'm completely guilty of this. So that first season when he came through, so you know, which year would this have been? It would have been 14, 15. Um, so the previous season, he's played a handful of Europa League games and you know, he looked pretty good, but... Yeah. They're playing sort of, you know, some some team who failed to win the Cypriot Championship or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then the, I, mean, I was sat next to, to, to John Bruin, you know, a friend of the show. Um, the 5-3 game on New Year's Day when, when Spurs beat Chelsea. It's New Year's Day 2015. When he was brilliant. You know, he scored at least two. Did he get a hat-trick maybe? Two. Two. And we, we were just sort of sitting there laughing, sort of going... No, I'll put him on the banknotes. Yeah, the greatest living Englishman, <laughs> greatest Englishman since Isaac Newton, uh, because we just couldn't work out why he was good. And to be honest, I still don't quite understand why Harry Kane's good. Um, I've accepted that he is really good, but yeah, he's he's sort of he's not obviously outstanding in the air. I don't think he's obviously an outstanding finisher. I don't think he's got an obviously outstanding long range shot. He's not obviously outstanding at taking people on and beating them. I don't think his passing's obviously outstanding, but he's very, very, very good at all of those and combines that with, I think, a spatial awareness that, that we really sort of don't give him credit for. 
mm. uh, because of his goals output. And, and that makes him this extraordinarily potent all-round striker who's very hard to stop because it's not a case of, well, stick the big lump on him and he won't win in the air because then he'll do you on the ground. But equally, you can't put the quick guy on him because he'll beat him in the air. He's an exceptional all-round forward who has some sort of uh, quirk of vision or, or, or um, prescience that, that mean he, he scores and sets up loads and loads of goals. And he's very hard to explain. And I think that's why he continues to be slightly underrated. And yeah, I, I, I realized I was wrong on that New Year's Day 2015. I was very hungover at the time, if that's an excuse. But yeah, he, he wasn't, he wasn't for, me, for me and John Bruin, he was a comedy figure that day and we enjoyed it immensely. I'm pleased to hear Jonathan say that Harry Kane is underrated after Ken Early said on Second Captains yesterday that Harry Kane is very overrated. Uh, wow. I think that, You'd expect that from Ken saying that about one of England's players. Yeah, I think thought Ken, Ken attacking an Englishman. Like, has that ever happened before? I think that this this version of Harry Kane we saw in this game was really the sort of physical, the, the, the kind of peak version of this mm. first iteration of Kane, or maybe second iteration of Kane. Uh, in ter- he was a very, very quick, mobile number nine who was able to lead Tottenham's pressing. He could... He just about getting behind opposition centre backs. He could win things in the air. It's actually very different from the Kane we see nowadays, who plays ten yards deeper. If you look at him, he's just a bigger guy now. Like looking back at the clips of Kane from the sort of sort of twenty fourteen to twenty seventeen era, he's just a you know he's just he's leaner. There there is less of him. Well, the finish and, on the second goal is is weirdly Jamie Vardy. Really, yeah, yeah. Just, get, getting in front of the marker, just just. Getting the right sort of touch to guide it in the right, you know, it's not pretty, but it's totally effective and actually yeah. really hard to do. He had that dart in behind then, which he doesn't really do so much now. And uh, and now, obviously, he plays a bit deeper. He takes far more touches of the ball, I think. He's not only the sort of nine for the team, but effectively Tottenham's ten as well. And it's just a, um, he's evolved a lot. And whether you think that's better or less good, you know, that's a very open debate. And there's certainly some people who think that uh, Kane should get back to doing what he used to do, trying to play as a number nine, trying to lead the press. Do you um, think he's still capable of doing that, or do you think the injuries? Well, that's the big question. A is it, is he physically? I don't know if he is physically capable of of playing like he did five years ago. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he isn't. You know, he's had tons of ankle injuries. He's had a hamstr- bad hamstring injury. Uh, I don't know if he. I don't know if he could play like he did in 2017 nowadays. And I, I wonder whether. Pep Guardiola would want him to. Arguably, City need more of a 2017 Harry Kane than they need a 2021 Harry Kane at this point. Um, so it's a bit, yeah, it's certainly an open debate, but the way that he played at this point is very different from the way that Kane plays nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's um, it's it's an almost impossible question to answer because you can't suddenly ask Kane to lose the bulk because the risk if he does that and tries to go back to being this Harry Kane, the other Harry Kane of four years ago, is he doesn't have that turn of pace, and then he's lost the physicality as well. So my 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 inclination is to praise him for having the the wherewithal and and and, and sort of the the humility and the knowledge of his own body to adapt his game in the yeah. way that a Michael Owen type figure didn't. Mm. You know, Michael Owen, um, I mean, I, I sort of maybe I'm being unfair on Owen, but it, it, Michael Owen's career sort of coincides with mine in, in terms of when he started when I started yeah and so he was somebody who, who um yeah I felt very aware of all the time I felt I was writing about him a lot 
And I remember in those early years talking a lot about what happens when his pace goes. And I remember asking him even the launch of his first autobiography, have you thought about what happens when your pace goes? And he said, well, I won't. I've always been quick. And then you know, he gets the hamstring injuries. Of course, his pace does go, and it turns out there's not much there. Uh, now, Kane obviously was never quite as quick or as reliant on pace as Owen. But he has changed his game. Now, whether he's doing that because he, he feels a more mature player needs to drop deeper, or whether he's doing that because his body is telling him he can't do what he used to do, either way, he's transformed himself into a player who is at least roughly as effective, maybe more effective, maybe less, depending on which one of you you want to take, but who's still a great centre forward, um, despite a, or, or, or with a, a, a changing body type. Yeah, I think the way he's adapted his game has been profoundly successful. There's not that many people who do it that who do it that radically and that young as well. Like he's only well, he's only just turned 28, and yet the season just gone, he was top of the Premier League for goals and assists. Which he certainly would never have been at this, you know, at the twenty sixteen seventeen point that we're talking about here. So yeah, I definitely think I definitely think he does deserve a lot of praise for that, and it, and, I, and it might well be that the changes that he's made will give him a durability over the next five or six years, which allow him to break the Alan Shearer Premier League goal record, which of course is so important to him. Mm. It's funny the th- the things you're saying there about about Harry Kane. Some of them could be applied about the person, the man who got Manchester United's goal that day, which of course Wayne Rooney kind of tapped in and. This is towards the end of of Rooney's powers at, at Manchester United before he would then then leave. Um, but what do you remember of Rooney around this time, Jonathan? I think it's a, I mean Rooney's somebody who I have said doing these podcasts has been incredibly useful to me with regard to Rooney. Um, because and I think I said this when we did the with Simon Cooper when we did the the 2011 Champions League final. That Rooney was somebody who, and again, this is to do with my career, that he came through just after I'd started. And I remember 2004, the sense of, this guy's incredible. This guy mm-hmm. can, can, can win everything for England. And obviously, he's never quite lived up to that. But I mean, who, whoever does, and partly has to do with injuries. Um, also coming around at the same time as Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi, even though they're a touch younger. Yeah, yeah. That did, I, probably didn't help. Probably, probably hasn't put in Put in the same bracket by sections of the English media because you wanted him to be, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think in 2004, that would not have been a totally unreasonable comparison, but you know, things didn't quite... Whether that was to do with the injuries, whether that was to do with his body type, whether he could have been more more disciplined or whatever. But my, my point is, our 2011 final, he's brilliant in it. Yeah. In, a, in a team that's really struggling, he's brilliant. And I, I sort of think I and, you know, the, the football media and maybe football culture more widely sort of always had that slight sense of well he hasn't hasn't quite lived up to what we wanted him to be in 2004 and, and so we mm-hmm. slightly haven't quite rated him as a result the other this is I'm going to sound weird here but shall I yeah, I'll say this now I've started well I, I've been slightly affected by a dream I had <laughs> where I had, had this dream of um, that that Wayne Rooney was was um, he 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 was constructed entirely of sausages, right. and he he was being fried in a pan, uh-huh. and his sort of limbs were just sort of bursting out with all this kind of horrible fatty sausage meat. Yeah, Ryan, don't edit this out. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> and and since that dream, I've never really quite been able to look at him in the same way. Um, yeah, and, and so I sort of see him just as a man. You know, you know, like you get balloon animals. I sort of feel Rooney's like a balloon footballer, but those balloons are full of sausage meat. Jack, do you want to uh, comment on that? 
Wow. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. I was really on board when he was saying that uh, Rooney, you know, Rooney was a far Rooney was a fantastic player who I think we, we kind of a little bit we missed that a bit because our expectations in Euro 2004 were so high. And it, and understandably so. Like the other day, I think at some point during the Euros, actually, somebody tweeted uh, a, a, compila- a sort of three minute compilation of Rooney hi- Rooney's highlights in Euro 2004. And I watched it utterly open mouthed at how good he was. And of course, mm, well, I, you know, I remember, I remember Euro 2004. I watched it all. But in in the con- it's one of those clips where you watch it and you think even in the context of seventeen years since he somehow looks even better now than I remember him being at the time. Well, that that Croatia game in two thousand four, yeah, I, I was there in Lisbon and I don't remember ever having been so certain a player was going to score as it was when Rooney picked up the ball you know, just inside the Croatia half and suddenly bears down. You sort of think there's no way they're going to stop him, and I'd never really sort of certainly had an experience that with a Sunderland player, and I, I not even you know Kevin Phillips in his pomp. We go. And I, I never experienced it with a with a with an England player, um, and I, yeah, I think that's why, uh, yeah, the, the the thought he might be one of the greatest ten players of all time, the fact he wasn't and isn't, uh, that he's one of the I don't know best hundred English players of all time. I don't know. I mean, England's all time leading scorer well, and Manchester United as well. And Manchester United's leading scorer. So, so to say, it's, perhaps he didn't fulfil his potential. Yeah, I understand. It's, it's that, ludicrous. It, it is ludicrous. But yeah. and yet, yet that sense lingers because he was so good back then. Mm-hmm. But of course, now he, you know he was England's sort of talisman, if you like, and and now Harry Kane is. And and again, this season was off the back of um, England going out to Iceland in the Euros. Kane was obviously. Um, I, I can't remember too much what he did, but I remember he was the corner kick taker for that England side. It didn't sort of go very well, mm-hmm. and it, it's just remarkable what happens. You know, you you fast forward to the end of the season, he's obviously playing, going great guns for Spurs, and then would would be would be the the golden boot winner at the at the World Cup the following summer, Jack. So it just this season for Tottenham Hotspur, as I say, the, the making of well, making it. I don't know if that's the right word, but it certainly put the spotlight on 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 certain people a little bit more so than they they had previously. Yeah, completely. And it's you know very obvious point, but Kane was just totally transformed by being managed by Pochettino. Yeah. You know, yeah. in twenty four at the start of the twenty fourteen fifteen season when he first got into the team, nobody would really would have expected him to have played at Euro twenty sixteen less than two years later uh, under Roy Hodgson. But of course he did, and then off the back of this, eventually became the star of the England team at the twenty eighteen World Cup. I think I think the Rooney Kane comparison is interesting. Like clearly Gareth Southgate couldn't. I mean, clearly they didn't work together. Mm. Like that, that's why Roy Hodgson, uh, Euro 2016, moved Rooney back into midfield, which I think was, it was a kind of weak decision masquerading as a strong one. Mm. Like Hodgson said, look how brave I am, I've moved Rooney into midfield. But really it's because he didn't want to drop Rooney, which he he obviously should have done, because by Euro, by the time that Euro 2016 came around, Rooney wasn't good enough anymore, and Kane, was, Kane or Vardy really should have been up, or even Sturridge, should have been up front for England at that point. Um... So they never quite clicked together for England. And actually it was Rooney really getting dropped by Southgate and then sacrificing himself and saying, I don't want to be part of this anymore, that allowed Kane to become the first choice centre forward. Although the comparison between the two, I think, is quite interesting because Kane, Rooney's obviously won it, won the lot, you know, Champions League, tons of Premier Leagues. Kane has won nothing at this point at all. And yet, I, because of what we were just saying earlier, and I don't, you know, this prediction might turn out to be wrong, I think Kane's longevity means he will outstrip Rooney in the, in the sort of second half of his career, score, eventually get the Shearer record and have a more successful career as a goal scorer 
for both club and country than Rooney ever did, even if he doesn't win the team trophies. Hmm. Um, so he might, you know, by that metric, he might turn out to be a more successful player than Rooney, even if he's um, he would obviously love the trophies that, that Rooney managed to win for his club. Yeah, and he'll have uh, Pochettino to thank for it because, as I say, moulded him into such a player. I mean, just to finish off about this. You know this this, uh, this this game and this Spurs side. I, I feel to talk about Pochettino, just Jonathan. You... Well, so so we should say that the United yeah. do pull but one back, and it's a really good movement for Mooney to get on the yeah. end of a low cross from Martial. And there is a little bit of a Spurs wobble, but not really. And they they should have. It, it's two one, so there's a slight bit of tension in the last ten minutes, but it, it should have been about four one by then. Yeah. So it is a completely dominant performance. Yeah, and and obviously Spurs players they look physically great and and they knew their jobs and so on. But Pochettino himself, what, what man management? Uh, you know, he, he always seemed quite likable in the press, and clearly the players wanted to play for him. And, and I mean, did you find that Jonathan with Pochettino? Well, I mean, Jack spent far more time with him than oh, I did, but, but I always found him utterly engaging and fascinating and, and charming. Mm. I knew you did. That's why I asked you the question. With the <laughs> with a very obvious streak of steel beneath, yeah. and the way he ruthlessly—I mean, for instance, Andros Townsend, mm. when he decided he had served his purpose, gone. Um, yeah, uh, added by all the same. Uh, mm-hmm. But 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 Jack would have spent more time than, than I did. So I mean, I'm also interested, Jack, to what extent you think the responsibility, should we say, rather than blame, the responsibility for Tottenham's decline post this is down to the lack of investment and to what extent Pochettino has to take some of that responsibility. Yeah, well, on the first point, I always found Pochettino to be kind of warm, charismatic, funny, outgoing. I think he has that kind of... Mm. He's actually an interesting mix of having the, um, the kind of charisma that kind of quite argentine like charisma and sort of slightly like macho slightly macho gregariousness of yeah, yeah. a very like high-end professional footballer i mean slightly also- macho you imagine you remember him sort of copping his bollocks after the uh the yeah. Ajax game yeah so it kind of like he has that kind of macho charisma of a professional footballer while also clearly being a very forward-thinking coach and not all fo- that's not you know that's quite a rare mix really um, at the top end of the game. I guess you can kind of maybe look at Conte. Uh, Guardiola doesn't really have that same energy, I don't think, in, in quite the same way. In terms of the responsibility for the for the for for what happened next, I think the big issue... I mean, someone said to me the other day, like, Pochettino... It's not just... It's not that Pochettino was annoyed that Levy didn't sign the players that he wanted. It's that Pochettino is annoyed that Levy didn't sell the players that he wanted. Pochettino knew that his style of play and his mode of management, which is incredibly high-energy, intense football played by players who are very hungry and motivated and desperate to win for the team, you can't do that forever. You can only do it for two or three years at a time. And if you look at Atletico Madrid, managed by Pochettino's mate Simeone, with whom there's some fairly obvious comparisons and continuities, they've had an incredible turnover of players over the last 10 years, which has allowed them all maybe not quite so much now, but generally allowed them to play with intensity over a long span of time. Now, when Spurs were right at their peak, so 2017, 2018, Pochettino wanted players sold from Tottenham. It's not, I mean, Tottenham sold Kyle Walker in the summer of 2017. Poch, if it's up to Pochettino, they would have sold 
Um, they would have sold Danny Rose. I think the next year they certainly would have. He would he would have wanted them to sell Alder Weirald. As soon as Alder Weirald decided not to sign a new contract, he would have wanted them to sell Ericsson the following year when he decided not to sign a new deal. He, you know, Deli Ali, you know, all these really really good players for Spurs. Pochino wanted to get them out so that he could get new players in who would buy into the ideas. The problem is that for various economic reasons, Tottenham found it very difficult to sell the players that Pochino wanted out. And so Pochettino was landed with the same squad every season for five years in a row, pretty much. And that's what he didn't want because he knew that it, things would go stale and that he wouldn't be able to get the same energy on the pitch. And that's as good as the run to the 2019 Champions League final was. And it was amazing. It was always a bit, it was kind of built on, Pochettino built it on sand, basically. Like the team was in steep, steep decline by this point because they hadn't been able to sell the players that he wanted them to sell. Yeah. Jack, it's been a pleasure talking to you uh, about uh, Pochettino and this Spurs side. Thanks very much for, for coming um, back on the podcast. My pleasure. I loved it. <laughs> nice one. For more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. Uh, but until next week, uh, when we're back with another great game from the history of football, it's goodbye from myself and Jonathan. Cheers. <laughs>